These are the dialogues of a peculiar character. My name is Thomas Gideon. Join me in my journey planning and opening a craft brewery through conversations with the amazing and curious people helping me along the way and who already work in an industry I'm hoping to join. I look forward to sharing with you the fascinating stories about how and where beer is made and served, including one day soon when that will be my very own brewery. The last handful of months, my nights and weekends have been spent in pursuit of an online course in professional brewing. In an upcoming episode, you'll learn more about the program and the guild and the person responsible for it. Starting with this season, I'll be bringing on more voices like that and like my friend and consultant Thomas Vincent from the last episode of previous season. Andrea and I are very fortunate to have the means to build a small team of experts. Not only are they helping us start our brewery, Each presents an amazing opportunity to learn, opportunities I'm grateful in many cases to be able to share with you. One of the most important early steps in starting any business is the plan. I've been very lucky to have found and been working with another consultant, one with a background very similar to mine, actually studying art, who channels that creativity into crafting distinctive and compelling visions of what success can look like for her clients. I'm talking remotely with a consultant I've hired to help with our business plan to learn more about her background helping people like us with her hopes of starting a small business. Welcome. Happy to be here. To start, can you say your name briefly and tell us just a little bit about what you do? Uh, sure. My name is Erin Guyton, and I'm a business storyteller. And what that means is, in a nutshell is I tell the story of a startup or an existing business to an investor uh, or a lender so that they can raise capital for this venture. I write business plans. My favorite first question, we're going to have to take a pass on because I know that you can't really drink beer. I do like to kind of warm up with a bit of a story, though. So in place of that, let me ask this instead. What is it about helping small businesses like craft breweries, like like ourselves, that specifically called you to chase it? Uh, I have a love affair with small business. I mean, I've been in business for about 30 years and uh, a few years ago, um, and First of all, I'll let you know a little bit about my background. I'm a classically trained artist. And when I got out of school, uh, I took a job in an office to make ends meet. And I very quickly discovered that numbers tell stories that words can't tell. And uh, it was the early advent of, of online spreadsheets. And um, I fell in love with numbers and the stories that they told. And throughout my career, um, I was seen as the creative artistic person who happened to be good at business. So uh, when I went back to school uh, to get my master's degree in business, uh, it, it, it unlocked everything for me. It was like giving me the most amazing big toolbox because what I wanted to do was I wanted to help businesses solve their problems. And so I had this toolbox and was trying to figure out how to marry the left and right sides of my brain and someone asked me to write a business plan, and, and that was instantly 
I knew exactly that's what I wanted to do. Um, I love telling the story of a business. I, you know, I came up in small business. Small business is where I got my chops. Uh, and then, you know, the last client I had before I went back to school uh, had uh, was a wine and beer retailer. So uh, even though beer does not agree with me, I love beer, and it, it gave me the chance to um, see the front of the house part of the industry and, and to taste some amazing beers and wines, and then also to learn a little bit about the, the back end of the business. So that's kind of, um, you know, that's what led me to do what I do, and, and, and that's why I'm so enamored of small business. Um, and, you know, I think that I'm having so much fun on your project because of those things. I was referred to you by uh, my lawyer, the first part of the team I've been pulling together to, to make this happen, uh, who himself has started, helped uh, many startups get going, especially in the craft alcohol production industry here in Maryland. I'd been gathering information on my own and thinking about how to tackle our business plan when you and I first met. I'll admit uh, to feeling a little overwhelmed by the whole prospect and uh, having the good fortune as I do to have some resources and already have received some good advice about not being shy about hiring people to help when possible. Is that typical in any way or like what are the ways in which people kind of make that first contact with you and have that first conversation uh, that I remember where you said something very similar to what you just explained about how you get how you got started is that or do you find people in a, in a diversity of places in the process and and kind of dig in wherever they're at uh, you know I I tend to find um, I well most of the clients come to me through people like Hank who are working with their clients uh, either to expand or start up a business I mean, you know, most people have a business idea or if they're expanding their business, uh, they're going to talk to a few people and they're going to talk to their lawyer, uh, their accountant, or their banker. And so people usually come to me through one of those three venues. Um, you know, the reasons that they start their business ventures are, are where, it, where it all varies because they come to me at any stage in the process. A, a lot of people... Uh, come to me and, and we kind of end up stopping there because their whole idea for the business is a business that they, that they find attractive and fun, but that they've not really drilled down to what's required, like from a business sense. Like, for example, um, a lot of people start restaurants because they're designing the type of restaurant where they would like to dine. They're not really thinking that, wow, I'm a great match for the restaurant business. And so, um, you know, when people come to me from their lawyer, they're usually in the very early startup phases. And working with, um, with people who are in that phase, it involves a lot more um, coaching and kind of I have to explain what it is I do and it, I have to explain what it is their audience is going to want. Um, you know, versus if I'm working with a business that's been around for 20 years and they want to borrow money to expand, it's a completely different conversation. Can you unpack that a little bit more? What, what makes it different? Like, I, I think you spoke really well to somebody who's starting out and maybe still has a lot of questions to ask themselves. Is it that someone uh, later already established has a better sense of identity? Is it is it something else that makes that conversation go a little bit differently? The conversations with the startups, uh, I always ask my clients three questions, and they're the three questions I answer in every business plan, and that's why you, why now? And why here? And uh, I met with some clients that were, were looking to start up something really fabulous and interesting. Um, and, but halfway through the conversation, you know, I said to them, "We have to demonstrate. We have to demonstrate the screaming need for what it is that you do." So, um, 
you just think about a model that would work in a bigger city that may not work in a smaller city. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, you're inspired. Yeah, your idea is amazing. Yes, you have lots of great experience, but this business idea will not work with these demographics. So I have to do some coaching uh, with my with my clients in the startups so that they can um, really think hard about, is this the right venture in the right place at the right time, and am I the right person to do it? So compared to uh, someone who's established who maybe already has a better sense of that or sort of the need for expansion is, is a, a little more understandable, like it logically flows from success up to that point? Exactly, exactly. With the established clients, I mean, you know, um, you know, maybe they're having capacity issues, which demonstrates that their market is demanding what they do. Uh, with a startup, it's a little it's a little more nebulous. Like you have to demonstrate you have to demonstrate that there's a need for what you do where you want to do it. One of the things that impressed me, speaking of sort of the coaching that you find yourself doing with people earlier on in building a business, is the level of detail that you offer, as well as the flexibility in terms of how much or how little you can help, depending on where people are at and what they need. Um, how much does the work you do to help startups actually vary across that spectrum? Is it is it more similar? Is it is it really all sort of is are we all getting the same level of coaching? Or are there some startups that maybe have done some of their own preliminary work, maybe don't need as much of that help in that way? Yeah, I would say it's all of the above. So some startups have done a lot of their own preliminary work. Um, in particular, the section of the business plan on operations is, is where I need somebody that really knows what they're doing because, um, you know, for example, I, I did a business plan for a, a factory that made baked goods. Well, I don't need to learn how to make baked goods en masse to, to, to write the operations section. So, you know, like in the work I'm doing with you, you've got such a good handle on all the whole operations section. I don't need to drill down too deeply on that. But when it comes to the marketing section and the finance section, um, you know, I offer varying degrees of assistance, um, but that's where I offer the most. And how it varies um, really depends on the audience. So I wrote a business plan for um, another startup brewery in a completely different area um, with a completely different model than yours. But uh, this particular client was not seeking um, to work with any kind of a bank. They were seeking to work with investors. So when I'm working on a business plan for investors, investors are can be a little bit short attention span. They just want you know they they want you to drill it down very quickly and not as many pages. So um, in order to condense all of that work into a shorter number of pages, um, you know, and to a degree for less of a fee, um, the client is not going to receive the benefit of as much of my counseling, in particular in the section regarding finance. Um, now. Someone that's going for the classic full business plan, um, which I prefer doing and which I prefer writing, um, they're going to get some counseling. Uh, you know, I'm going to jump in and compare what they're proposing to do to what's uh, a good standard in their industry. And so that when they start off, they're not overspending on rent or they're not underspending on marketing. You know, they're set up with an appropriate set of benchmarks. Um, so that they can succeed. So, you know, the level of coaching I do does vary, I guess, based upon who the audience is, investor or bank, and also depending upon how much work the client has done ahead of time. Does it vary from industry to industry? Do you work across uh, very similar industries or do you find yourself working across diverse industries? And 
if the latter, like, is it pretty much the same except like uh, what you said in terms of what it is that's being produced? Uh, yeah, I work across all different industries. So I've done um, a nonprofit business plan who was seeking to get uh, people to donate instead of invest. Um, I've done a business plan for a $250 million private equity fund seeking investors. I've done a large factory. Um, I've done a few breweries. I've done a pharmacy. Um, working with a tech startup right now, I can't tell you what it is <laughs> because I'm under non-disclosure. Uh, working with a general contractor, uh, a real estate agent. So pretty varied industries. Uh, I would say I would say the one the one commonality across all of those business plans is I, I use very similar outline, um, and the marketing section of the plan um, always demonstrates the need. And I could drill down a lot more deeply on that whole marketing section of the plan and what I believe marketing is and what it is not. Um, you know, regarding the uh, operations section of the plan, that always varies because that's where the expertise comes in. So, you know, I don't need to learn how to make outstanding beer. You already know how to do that. I just have to communicate that. Let's dig into the the marketing section since you brought it up. And I think it may be something that isn't as clear to listener perhaps as the operations side where uh, that maybe speaks to more typically what people think about what a business does. Can you explain how the marketing section uh, what purpose that serves, uh, how maybe that tells a different story, not only about the business, but uh, maybe the context in which a, a business is, is looking to situate itself. Yeah, sure. This is actually my favorite topic. So uh, when I write a business plan, I always start with the market analysis uh, because I can't write anything else until I write that. And it'll make sense here in, in, in a minute or two. So um, I give presentations, and in my presentations, I say the same thing. Regardless of your industry, and I mean regardless of your industry, um, marketing is always threefold. Uh, marketing is always, always threefold. Uh, number, number one is market analysis and strategy. So that is, you know, that's what I call your screaming need. Are there enough people looking to purchase your product or your service in the area where you want to provide it uh, so that you can generate enough revenue to have a successful business. So, you know, I dig deep into market analysis in the plans, and that's in your demographics, but also not just how many people there are, but, you know, what do they like to spend their money on? Um, and we can talk more relative to how that comes into play with your plan. So that's number one with market, is, is market strategy and, and analysis. Number two is marketing communications. And this is what most people call marketing. So it's all the different ways you present yourself to the public, um, your branding, your PR, your advertising, your print media, your electronic media, your social media. Um, I like to think of it number one in marketing and number two in marketing is push-pull. So, so push is your marketing communications. That is you promoting yourself to the public. Pull is the market analysis. Market analysis. That's looking at where is the business, where can I go grab it, pull it toward me. So that's number one. Number two. Number three is marketing spend. So once you decide where you're going to be and what you're going to do, and you've decided the best way to communicate it to the public, you have to know how much to spend. And I would say 
almost exclusively every business I've ever worked with and counseled has not known what they should be spending on marketing. Um, they're either getting this information from the people who are selling them the marketing, uh, which I would not advise, um, you know, or they're getting it from their peers who are overspending. So, you know, there are, there's an, there are a couple of people in an industry I'm working with, and let's just say, for example, they should be spending about two and a half to 3% on marketing. Some of the people are spending upwards of 10% on marketing, and they're not understanding why they're not making money. And so if you're overspending on marketing, that's, um, you know, that's like the, um, the margin of diminishing returns. It's like, um, you know, if, 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 if make a bed by myself, I can do it so fast. If I have a friend helping me, we can do it twice as fast. If I get 10 people in to make the bed, we don't make it any faster. So, you know, overspending on marketing is just really, it's like, uh, you know, like stepping over a dollar bill to pick up a quarter. So, um, when I write a marketing plan as part of a business plan, it starts with the market analysis, the demographics, um, you know, we can talk more in depth about the marketing plan for your plan, but, you know, beer, people drinking more beer, they're drinking less beer, they're drinking more craft beer, you know. Then number two, we go to communications. How do people in your industry promote what they do? Do they do a lot? Of, do they do billboards at baseball stadiums, you know, or do they do beer festivals? Um, and then from there, we come up with a dollar amount that should be appropriate for the spend on marketing. So um, this is all wrapped up into the marketing plan of a business plan. And I've actually had a business banker tell me, that I say, hey, when you get a business plan, what do you read first? And he goes, I go right to marketing. And then I read the financial section. And then I read all the rest. And then I read about the operations. What's your sense in, uh, is it really just that alignment with sort of, uh, how you think about what requires to be for a business to be successful uh, or uh, what's your sense of like their prioritization for that? Is it that the, the, the demand has to come first and then everything else has to kind of line up and it be appropriate to that? Yeah, the demand has to come first. They have to demonstrate a demand and, and ideally it's a demand and something definable, you know, so it's not like I'm inventing something that nobody's ever used. It would be very difficult to demonstrate a demand for that. So once the demand comes into play, um, the second thing they want to see is an appropriate benchmark for all the financials. So let's just say we can demonstrate the demand. You know, we have to build financials that make sense. I can't build a restaurant business plan if somebody wants to send 15% of their projected income on rent because it won't work. And uh, in fact, I had a client who insisted upon um, paying about 11% of their projected volume for rent. And I, it was ill-advised, and I wrote the plan for them, and they folded in a year. So um, they, the bank or the investor is going to want to see um, what's built into this. If it's a startup, is somebody paying themselves, you know, an, an, a ginormous, enormous, overinflated salary um, in the beginning? Are they overspending on, on things that, you know, like restaurant fit-up or things that um, that would not be uh, advisable based upon the benchmarks in their industry. So um, it, after they see the demand and they see that there are an appropriate uh, financial projections, what they're going to want to see in the operations section is they're going to want to see the answer to the question who. Um, and this comes into like, you know, where you talk about like why here, why now. Um, operations to a degree is why is, is why you. So if you built an entire business and you haven't put anything in the business plan that's going to answer the question, 
who is responsible for keeping the books, um, then you failed in your business plan. So they're going to want to see that there are people in positions that have experience either in that position or a comparable position um, who, who are poised for success and who can report back. So let's say, for example, you're getting an SBA loan. You've got to report back to the bank if you're getting an SBA loan about how you're doing. They're going to want to see information. So they're going to want to see that there's somebody in the organization who is very skilled at providing information. Um, you know, in a business plan for, for what you, for your venture, they're going to want to see um, they're going to want to see what makes for a successful um, brewery and tap room, and they're going to want to see your plan at least demonstrate why you how do you, why do you know what you're doing, uh, and they're going to want to see uh, people in the various parts of the organization that know what they're doing. So I would say, you know, demonstrate the need first, demonstrate the financial second, and then and then answer the question, who? Sure. And it, it may be a little backwards from, certainly in this industry, some of the conversations I've had where people start with a, a consuming passion to make or share beer, and then it could lead them if they're not open-minded, if they're not open to sort of learning their way into the process to understand there are many ways to satisfy that passion. Maybe not all of them will work. So working with uh, someone who has the background that you do to do that market analysis and help kind of lay out the landscape a little bit better, or if on their own recognizance, they're able to piece that together, allows them to meet in the middle a little bit better rather than like oversizing or undersizing a brewery based purely thinking about the production side of things and not thinking enough about who's going to come in and actually going to buy that product, who's going to be thirsty month after month, year after year, or how might they grow that thirst in a way that is uh, responsive to their local market. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of questions to be answered. Um, you know, I we we've talked uh, before about you know Frederick County, Maryland, which is where I which is my hometown. It's Frederick City, and um, you know the sheer number of of breweries opening in Frederick as compared to the Maryland number for breweries per capita uh, is astounding. Um, however, you know, just because there are 16, 17 breweries in a small radius doesn't mean that they're all making money. Well, and it maybe puts more of a burden, too, in a, in a more developed market like Frederick in, in Maryland uh, to differentiate a little bit more than in a, a less mature market. You know, it seemingly, as time goes on, there isn't a part of the state that doesn't have some sort of craft beer presence or craft alcohol presence uh, I certainly have met more and more from the farther flung corners uh, of the state so that that analysis really can help people understand, like, instead of naively coming into a Frederick and assuming if I just produce beer, people will show up. Well, that's great, except that you've got, you know, a dozen and a half competitors who already have compelling offerings. So you have to think about how you might stand up as something distinctive to draw in. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it, it may not be realistic to open up a brewery because people just aren't open to the concept of craft beer at all. You know, they're used to mass produced product. So you've got some education work to do or you have to modify the plan in some way to take that into account that, that, that there are those differences in market. And there isn't really a, a – the passion doesn't lead you to a one-size-fits-all like brew beer and succeed. You have to actually pay attention to who is on the other side of – your your bar top if you're you know selling on premises or you have to pay attention to who the the retail and wholesale partners might be where you're you're starting up and uh who ultimately they're serving 
Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of parts, right? It's, a, it's so many working parts. So, I mean, yeah, there might be a demand for it. Uh, you might be one of a few people in the area doing it, and that all bodes well. Um, don't have the operational experience to know um, how to keep your cost of goods from skyrocketing, or to make a mistake that causes you to lose a whole batch. And I hope this is right, the right term in your industry, but the whole batch of product. Um, you know. There's so many. There's so many moving parts, and, and they've all they've all got to be working. Yeah, and I think like what I've learned from this process for sure. Uh, you know, starting with the passion is uh, it can be a little discouraging. How the the amount that you have to learn to be successful, and you're not wrong in terms of the um, you know planning for inevitable quality issues. The the willingness to dump a batch if it's not um, to brand or it's not up to a quality where you could sell it as a one-off to, to some other brand. But I think beyond the, the production and the operational side of things, um, seeing all the other things that you're talking about as a learning opportunity and yet another reason to be excited to be in business, that these these don't have to be, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, dried and um, onerous sorts of things. Uh, I think like where you started when you talked about story, like a lot of these things lead to a much more sophisticated story of not only how you're operating in the business, not only uh, what is the product that you're putting out there, but how you're actually starting to understand that market, weave yourself into the market, respond to it over time, and then ultimately have cause to come back to you like some of the other customers you talked about, you know, at, at year two, year three saying, hey, we actually did so well you know, now we're looking to capitalize a little bit more. Now we're looking to, to incrementally grow or expand or, you know, I, ideally meet some some vision of success. Right, definitely. Um, you know, any of the uh, number of really successful startups, you know, they've talked about um, their process being iterative, meaning, you know, they, they, they go and they start it and then they kind of take stock of where they are and see what worked and see what didn't. Uh, and then they go forward again. Um, so, but some people call it failing forward. Um, but all successful businesses have done this. So, you know, in writing a business plan for for a brewery, it's important to um, to start at an appropriate level and appropriate market share, right? Like, I'm not going to write your business plan so that you come in at market domination with like over 25% of the market, you know. Um, so it's important to build it appropriate. Now, there's no reason not to be positive and not to be a go-getter and not to think like, yeah, we're going to kill this. We're going to crush it. However, it's got to be reasonable. It's got to make sense. So um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. I got so excited. <laughs> sure. Well, and I, I think that that leads to another point that I really liked from our earliest conversations. Like at, at this point, um, it, it's a little bit more demanding in this industry in particular than it used to be. I've talked to um, some brewery owners that have been open for a while and they were able to to come up. And maybe some of it has to do with source of funds, like who, who they actually got to ultimately to help uh, capitalize the business. But it seems like um, the standard of a few years ago in terms of the detailed financials you need has evolved considerably. At this point, we need the common wisdom that, that I've learned even before I came to you and we were already on the same page in the first conversation is three years of month over month performa financials. And that, on the one hand, can seem very burdensome. And I know it's not something I'm super skilled at and I'm happy to, to collaborate with you and trust your background and your skill uh, to meet that need. But on the other hand, 
that's not nothing. To your point about sort of uh, uh, adapting and dialing in, it's not only the conversation with an underwriter saying you've done your due diligence and, and you're doing something that's appropriate for an appropriate state of a given market, but also something that we can look at you know, in our first six months, our first year, you know, all the way out to that end of the three years to say, are we doing as well as we expected? Were we way more conservative than the plan? And now we're, we're absolutely, you know, succeeding beyond our wild ex- expectation. And by how much, you know, how much then can we reinvest into the business? And what does that tell us about uh, how the market might be evolving? Like that, that gets me excited, like having that, that benchmark and that ability to um, continue to have some guidance even after, you know, we've got the plan in hand. Wow. Well, you might be the only other person I've met who got as excited as I did about a 36-month cash flow. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah, the 36-month cash flows can be um, ridiculous or they can be just, you know, a, a savior. So, you know, I've, I've been given business plans to edit and improve upon, and I've been given business plans as examples of, of what people want to see or not want to see. And... Um, Right away, I can look at a business plan and look at the 36-month cash flow, and if all the numbers are the same every month, straight across the board, uh, somebody didn't care about that 36-month cash flow. So um, even if there's very little seasonality in what you do, those numbers are going to change from month to month to month. Um, They do a couple of things. You can take that 36-month cash flow and create it as your budget so that when you run your numbers every month, you're doing budget versus actual, so you can actually see how you're performing and that's, you know, and all my clients get the spreadsheet that comes with that so they can play around with it and toggle it. Um, you know, aside from that benchmarking that you can do for yourself, the banks like to see that it's really, really thought out. Um, it can actually, uh, it can work as a cautionary document uh, in that when I write the 36 month cash flow, you've got you know, alcohol tax that you have to remit monthly, probably. You've got um, payroll tax that you have to remit quarterly. <clears throat> so this is money that's coming in that's not yours. So if it's coming in and it's not yours, it should be parked safely until it's time to remit it. Um, so in the in the 36-month cash flow will actually account for all of this. So it will say this was your volume. This is how much you collected in sales tax or alcohol tax that you have to remit later. Um, this is your gross payroll dollars. Um, however, you're withholding from your employees' wages that you're going to have to remit on their behalf, and it better be there when it's time to remit it. Um, if you're starting up, you know, it's not going to be gangbusters from day one, so you're going to have a few months where you're going to have all of your fixed expenses, but you're not going to have quite the revenue there. Uh, and so this 36-month cash flow document will not only show you all of that, but it will show you the point at which you completely start operating in the black for profit. Um, and then by the end of the third year, it's going to show you how much you can either return to your investors or yourself um, after everything else has been taken care of. So, um, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the most geeky, wonky, difficult part of the business plan and probably the most valuable. I would definitely agree. And I, th- I think most people uh, get or are more familiar with that, that latter point about uh, – um, becoming cash flow positive, right? That uh, the benchmark of when when are your earnings sufficient? That yeah, you might be able to take something something out where you're not uh, um, burning through whatever working capital you started out with. I personally, though, there, there's that there's that obvious sort of uh, milestone to look forward to. But I personally, uh, the more I learn, like that idea of having 
something laid out month over month to think about, uh, like to remind me to your point about like what we might have to set aside, but also even in a, in a business like uh, craft alcohol production, especially for a model like ours, where we're going to be serving in our own tap room to understand how yield and loss might come in month over month. To use that as a signal to understand it's maybe not necessarily are we producing enough beer, but are we training staff well enough to make sure that we're not uh, seeing more loss than anticipated at the tap through foam or mismanagement, this side or the other. So like all of these things in my mind, like the more data that I have, the more complete of a model that I have, uh, the more that can equip either things I already know and to activate good practices to come in and do, you know, cost management on the ground or better equip me to do some investigation and find out like, what did I not think of that might be affecting uh, cash in and cash out on a regular basis? Right. You actually brought up a great point. I'm sitting here writing myself a note. Um, so when you think about, um, you know, how sensitive you may, your business may be to yield and loss, uh, there is something called a sensitivity analysis, and there will be one in your business plan. And that is um, how sensitive are you to changes in, in, in um, your material. So let's just say, for example, um, something happens with hops. And they're really hard to get, and you have to pay a whole lot more for them. Uh, sensitivity analysis will show exactly how that would impact your business. You know, if the cost of hops went up by X percent, um, what would that do to your whole picture? Um, we can throw in yield. You know, you may you may be accounting for what like a five percent loss uh, yield loss. Um, we can put in the sensitivity analysis what would happen if that number was ten or fifteen percent, and what would that do to your bottom line? Yeah, these are these are all things that um, any working brewer who's listening to this and anybody who's working in a brewery and paying attention to the production side, these are absolutely things that, you know, whether people think about it in terms of the bottom line and, and cash management are facets of our business that uh, absolutely, yeah, uh, a particular hop becomes wildly popular um, and the price will skyrocket. So you're either in a position that you were smart and you contracted forward for it for the next couple of years and you've locked in a stable price and, and a steady supply, or, you know, you're, you're buying it as you can. And a lot of these things depend on the scale of the business as to where a particular brewery is at. Uh, so that's good to know. Like, and that's definitely something that any, any brewer with their salt, my opinion, is going to be thinking about that. And, and not only in terms of that sensitivity, and I don't know if this factors into how you might write out that part of the plan, but how you would respond to that, like how you might adjust a recipe, how you might anticipate building a particular brand for a beer that has, uh, it's not that one it hop, it is that it hop plus something else. So that if you substitute, you can stay a little closer to brand and definitely everything that we do in brewing is agriculturally related at the start. So global climate change is increasingly a factor. And you see a lot more articles in the trade press about how that's affecting barley supplies and hop supplies and how growing regions might change in terms of the agronomics and might even shift wholesale to different areas that previously hadn't seen production at that scale because of, of these sorts of changes. So uh, it all makes sense to me and hopefully uh it, it's something that uh, others listening to this in the industry are, are well aware of and makes sense that you would bake that into the plan. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it usually goes at the very end of the plan, but it's really quite eye-opening when I do it for people, especially if they are in a business that relies on raw materials like yours. Um, and, you know, and usually the one thing that comes after that document 
is the break-even analysis. So there's sensitivity and then there's break-even. And the break-even analysis uh, takes into account what are all your variable expenses that, that will go up or down with your volume. Uh, you know, say, for example, your utilities will go down. Maybe you're having a slower production month or, um, you know, maybe it's really bad weather and nobody's drinking beer and everybody's staying at home and whatever. So um, in a break-even analysis, it takes all of those variable expenses that will go down if business goes down, but then it takes all of those fixed expenses that aren't going to go down if your business goes down. Um, you know, the big one, rent, um, uh, a bank loan repayment, um, people who are on salary, um, um, you know, uh, to a degree, some communication utilities like cell phones, whatever, you can't turn all this stuff off if business drops. At the end of this whole break-even analysis that takes all these moving parts and puts them into fixed uh, expenses or variable expenses, there's a number there, a monthly number, um, that says basically you have to, your sales or your revenue for this month must be this number for you to break even. So, you know, because business fluctuates and you have payments and your bank account goes up and down and um, you might have a few bank accounts and they're going up and down and it's a lot of working parts and you're looking all of it, if you know this one number, you know that you must produce X dollars in revenue to break even. If you're a business and you're routinely missing that mark, it's time to go back and look at what's going wrong and fix it pronto. For sure. And I think there, there are some obvious things like we just talked about in terms of uh, supply sensitivities. Uh, in brewing, we do have, a, a, I think, maybe a bit more control over, up to a certain degree, the, the cost of goods sold. So um, how costly it is to make a particular recipe, even if we might have some inflexibilities if we're getting further into the three-tier system, we're dealing with a distributor or we're self-distributing directly to a retailer, um, that may impinge on how far we can set a particular margin and, and might constrain the, the cost of goods sold. But uh, in terms of um, some of those other control points, does that take us back in some way if we're talking about sort of um, the parts of the marketing plan, uh, both the, the demand side um, and the spend, of how we think about segments. Does that suggest that, you know, part of that spend should be, how do you measure the results of that spend? You know, if you're going to do a particular promotion, you're going to, you know, you're going to do some particular marketing activity. Is it wise to be thinking about uh, trying to characterize, is that paying off so that, you know, if you have those revenue targets, you can be thinking about uh, when to activate particular parts of the marketing spend to try to offset if you're seeing, say, a slow month seasonally, a slow month, things that you might do to bring more people into the tap room or attract more people to the brand. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And it's probably one of the most very, most difficult questions there is to answer both in marketing and in, in any kind of business planning is, you know, that your ROI on your marketing dollars, uh, unless you're doing a direct campaign that requires people to um, mention the campaign, you know, like a coupon or something, it's really hard to track the ROI. So it's most important to stay in line and spending with your peers. Uh, so at least you know, generally speaking, what should it be? If you want to make a decision to go slightly above that, um, either when you're in the ramp up start starting phase to you know your initial um, marketing campaign, or maybe you've got something like a big event happening and you want to spend a few more marketing dollars on that. Um, but, you know, in your industry, you're really super lucky that you've got through the Brewers Association, uh, not only what the marketing spend percentage as a percentage of your revenue should be, but how that is spent. So they've, you know, they can provide you uh, of your total marketing budget, what percent is spent on outdoor events and what percent is spent on print media 
and what's spent on electronic media. And so as long as you know that you're not, um, you know, substantially um, exceeding uh, or understanding your peers, uh, I think you're going to be in a good place there. Yeah, I, that brings me back to an earlier point that might not be obvious to all listeners who aren't in the midst of writing their own business plan or operating a small business, is is the, the, the importance of those benchmarks. We've thrown a couple of percentages out there, uh, and I think we're just maybe to try to sketch that out a little bit for listeners who aren't familiar, we're talking about like for every dollar that you have, every dollar that you earn in the business, we're talking about what percentage of that is appropriate to spend on things like rent, on payroll, on marketing, on any any of those recurring costs or those fixed costs that, that you might need to divvy up. And I think the important thing to bear in mind when we talk about uh, a bare percentage at any point in this, the conversation we've had today is it's not just a number in and of itself. It is kind of proportional to everything else that you've going got going on in the business. And so this tells you like, relatively speaking, well, tells you exactly the relative proportions of, you know, what you should be spending on this or that. And in an industry like ours, as you said, we have trade associations that collect a lot of good data on what's sort of typical, um, makes it easier for uh, outside investors, for bankers to understand what's typical versus what might uh, bear some more questions when you're going to seek investment or a loan or something like that. But I, I just wanted to, to, to stress that because I think it's something that, you know, as I talk to people that aren't used to thinking it, of it quite that way, um, they kind of sometimes quirk an eyebrow at me and go, well, percentage of what? Like, what What are we talking about here? Why are you talking about right. percentages versus, you know, some other way to characterize it? And I, I think as the business owner, it's a little bit easier to maintain that perspective of, you know, for every dollar, I'm talking about 2% for this, 4% for that. And at the end of the day, that has to add up to 100%. Like there, there's no way around it. You know, there's no more money to be had than, you know, how those percentages all, all add up. Well, yeah, right. Like, um, you know, like they say that, that numbers is the language of business. But when businesses talk to each other, they talk in percentages. Uh, and there's a very good reason for this. I mean, let's just say, for example, you have a million-dollar business, and you've got somebody else that's been a very similar business, and they're doing $6 million. So if you ask them, well, what do you guys spend on marketing? If they tell you that number in dollars, it's going to be six times more than what you should be spending. So you have to speak in terms of every number is a percentage of revenue. So, you know, we say cost of goods. I mean, that's basically exactly what it sounds like, the cost of of all of the materials and the production involved in making beer. Um, is that number in line with your peers? Uh, is your rent number? We've talked about the rent number, but rent, uh, and this was an interesting conversation that you and I also had recently when you're, when you're shopping for a location for your business and what you do, and your real estate agent is speaking in, in cost per square foot, and your business consultant that's writing your business plan is speaking to you in terms of percentage of revenue. So, um, you know, it's important no matter what you do to know what is the appropriate percentage of revenue to be spending on these things. Well, that, that brings up a good point, too, that I think, um, you know, whether you're in a position like we are to um, hire some experts to help us out um, or you're, you're doing this on your own, you are going to be talking to people who think about this a little differently. So the, the realtor, uh, when I speak to uh, percentages based on our model, even when I you know, share some, some of the broad strokes of that, you're right. Like he's not thinking about it in those terms. And I think the, uh, the, the business lecture that I got during my residential week at the American Brewers Guild, uh, 
program that I took really drove home, like they were focusing on more on retail sales. But I think it's a, a more general point of as a business owner, everybody that you're dealing with, like you're going to have your model. And as you put it, you're right, like percentage of gross revenue. And then when you go out to talk to suppliers, you go out to talk to your real estate agent or your landlord, or you go talk to um, a distributor or a retailer, they're going to have a very different way of thinking about it. And the point one of the one of the uh, Vermont Small Business Development Corp folks, Charlie, made was you have to know their language. So you have your model and how you think about it, how you're managing your business, what we were just talking about. But you also have to be able to translate. And that's that's been something fascinating that I've learned just even in the early stages of the property search that we're in is to be able to very quickly take the size of a property, um, the price per square foot, and kind of in my head come up with a number that lines up with that percentage of gross revenue to know very quickly, is this going to work on the face of it? Should we continue to look into the property as something that's worth doing the fit out on? Or is it just, it's out of our ballpark and we should move on to the next thing? Right, right. I mean, you know, you, you have to become multilingual when you run a business because you have to know what your supply, what your, what number your suppliers are looking at, or you know, in your case, the three tier system, the distributor, and then the retailer. Everybody has to know what everybody else's margins are. Um, you know, it, I I've had to learn some terms in working with you, like you know, what is a what is a beer barrel, and, and what is a turn, and um, you know, when you're going to be working with, uh, if you're working with a banker. If you're a business and you're wor- working with a banker and you're looking to borrow money, you know, the bank has any number of other metrics they're going to want to know. How many times um, can you, you know, your cash flow at the end of the month, how many times is that um, your your loan payment? Um, you know, uh, commercial real estate people speak in completely different languages. Um, and, it, they, you know, I've been in a room full of commercial realtors and, and really felt like I couldn't understand a thing they were talking about. So, uh, you, you know, when you run a business, you're going to have to know all of these numbers. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the passion for your business, I, um, one of the past guests, uh, Brendan O'Leary, co-owner of True Respite, uh, has told me on a few occasions, nobody cares about your business as a small business owner more than you. And it has a certain face value superficially. What I'm learning though, in, in dealing with people who, um, you know, I've recruited and I'm giving some consideration to help me out. Uh, there's still a lot that I have to bring in terms of that passion to tackle that sort of translation problem, to understand that um, having a team of experts doesn't guarantee success. I still have to invest so much of myself. And then the flip side, what's made that enjoyable is the realization of when I'm in a tap room talking to a listener or talking to another craft beer consumer, and they ask, hey, how is the planning going for the brewery? Their eyes almost instantly glaze over when I start talking about it. When I'm talking to one of my collaborators or partners on the business, you know, trying to figure some of these things out, even if we have to do a little bit of work on shared vocabulary, glossary, what have you, to understand uh, the different ways we might think about the same thing. Ultimately, the more detailed answers I give uh, that I enjoy giving, that's kind of my go-to, actually serve the best in those instances too. Like that equips the people who are helping me so much better than, you know, a short clipped answer or a you know, some other, you know, lacking sort of guidance of just, you go figure it out. Like I'm writing you a nice big check. You go figure it out. It's not about right. that per se it really is uh, a partnership. And I, I, and I like where we started the conversation where you were talking about coaching. I think we've touched upon uh, learning quite a bit through this conversation all around in terms of like uh, how that enables success, even in, in this early stage of a, of a business. 
you know, I mean, all the all really good businesses have people with complementary sets of skills and gifts. So there are people who um, are big visionary thinkers who really just don't have the patience um, or the inclination to jump into all this detail. However, the detail is really necessary um, for the operation of a business, especially one like yours that has production involved that, you know, lots of working parts that must be in sync for it to be successful. Um, but, you know, I really see, I see both sides of that and I see a need for both kinds of people in a business. So, um, and this is a little joke that I share with my significant other and I, um, I do some work with his business and, um, and he is just a big rap. His, like his motto is like ready, fire, aim. So <laughs> he is a big visionary thinker. He, and he said to me once, he said, you have analysis paralysis. And I looked at him and I said, you can't quantify that. <laughs> and it was like, that's our cartoon, right? Because like, I want to quantify everything. I want to analyze it. I want to number. I want to see that the numbers make sense because that's what makes sense to me. However, you know, I can't, um, you know, I don't have quite the passion for his business that he does. So, you know, he's the big thinker, the passion person. So, uh, I think it's really, really quite impressive that you seem to have both things going on. You're very, very passionate about what you do. You are a big thinker, but you're also very analytical, and you don't meet a lot of people like that. Well, I'm I'm fortunate that uh, my day job up to this point is analytical. My day job has afforded me some exposure to the kinds of things that I'll, I'll need to do more of with with my own business. And then I think I had, honestly had an, just an epiphany early on that maybe some other brewery owners who who identify more strongly as the brewer rather than the owner. Um, I anyway had realization that while I still have passion for brewing, all the other things that I was learning were absolutely fascinating to me. And they were in many ways e equally as fascinating to me as the process of making beer, the creativity that goes into making beer. And certainly, you know, the conversation I had at the end of last season with my brewery consultant, Thomas Vincent, this conversation are just further evidence that, you know, you can find people out there who bring a lot to the table that you can learn from in that capacity to, to, to really dig in. So I'm in some ways, I'm, I'm very fortunate that uh, the people that I found, the people that I've sought out to help uh, make engaging with that passion so much easier. Yeah. Well, you know, even if, there's, there is room for every, every type of person in a, in a, in a good business model. So, um, you know, like one of the consultants that, that I've worked with, um, who is a business coach who has helped coach me, uh, his name's Dirk Van Reen and his company's Berkflow. Um, you know, when, when you bring a, a problem or something to him, he says, the answer is who? So the answer is who, who is, who is best suited to solve this problem? So for your people who are listening, who are, brewer, who are brewers, who identify most heavily with a brewer, you know, who find the 36-month cash flow like just way too wonky and, and not even desire to dig into it, you know, the answer to that problem is who? Like, who is good at it? Who can you bring in who's good at it? Um, you know, if you live in a town that has a college, that has an MBA program, um, go hire an intern. Um, they're really good at it. They're not just good at spreadsheets. They're good at understanding how to use a spreadsheet as a tool to help your business um, and have them run some numbers for you. Have them do a 36-month cash flow to see where you're operating and to see where you might have um, efficiency, inefficiencies that you could improve upon. Absolutely. Is there anything else at this point I haven't asked you you would like people to know? Oh, my gosh. Uh, 
No, you've got really, you've asked me all the really great questions um, about, about writing a business plan and what goes on, uh, you know, behind the scenes, so to speak. So um, I'm just looking forward to tasting your first beer. <laughs> I look forward to it too. What exciting things can you tell us in terms of uh, what's coming up in your future? Well, I've got some great clients I'm working with. I'm working with a real estate client and, uh, and a tech startup that I'm super excited about um, and a general contractor and, uh, and also home inspector out in California. So these are all really great clients. Um, one of the things I really like to do is I do like to give presentations and help people start to be thinking a little bit more about in this benchmarking thing and also the three-tier marketing that I talked about. Why you, why now, why here? is the first question, and the other three tiers are market analysis, marketing spend, and marketing communications. So I was fortunate enough last week I addressed a group of um, professionals who were, uh, they're affiliates in the real estate world. So in real estate, uh, you've got agents, but they also, um, they had home inspectors, um, mortgage lenders, appraisers, moving companies, property photographers, um, title attorneys, um, companies like that. So I gave a talk about, you know, what is marketing and how to gauge your market success. Um, in particular, people have a habit of comparing themselves to themselves the year before. Like, I'm up over myself last year. Um, like, if for your business, after you're in business for a few years and you say, wow, we're up over last year, you should also look and see what craft beer is doing. If craft beer is up by 50% and you're up by 25%, you're not keeping pace with your market. So this is a presentation I love to give, and um, participants usually have awesome questions. So if anybody uh, listening, if you're anywhere within a one or two hour radius of Frederick, Maryland, um, and you have a group, uh, invite me. I'd love to come talk. Where can people go to get in contact with you to hopefully request that talk or to learn uh, more about you and your work? Sure. So you can just go to my website, and it's my full name, and it's erinkguyton.com, and that's E-R-I-N-K-G-U-Y-T-O-N.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Erin. Thank you so much for having me, Thomas. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. In the next dialogue of a peculiar character... I'm working on a couple of guests. One would be the man behind the American Brewers Guild, the place where I took my pro brewing course. Another might be a voice from the consumer side, someone who is a regular in many tap rooms and has a unique perspective on craft beer here in Maryland. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to feedback at peculiarcharacter.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please help spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Please consider supporting the show financially by visiting patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash peculiar character, and become a backer. Patrons enjoy special behind-the-scenes access and bonus content. The support of my patrons is greatly appreciated. Until next time, chase what calls you. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. 
Theme music is Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.